Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dev, and today I'll be continuing my series on estrogen. I'll pick up where I left off on my last estrogen episode. But before doing so, I must first share the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. So I've discussed in my prior few episodes on estrogen, um, how and why estrogen can build up in the body. But in today's episode, I want to go a little deeper and talk about estrogen metabolites. And so this is a super critical piece of the estrogen story that I think often gets overlooked. So for starters, let's talk about the process, right? The process that takes estrogen and breaks it down into these smaller metabolites of estrogen is called hydroxylation, meaning the addition of a hydroxyl group, which is basically hydrogen and oxygen. So what happens is these various enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes facilitate the hydroxylation of estrogen into these smaller metabolites of estrogen. And this is part of the phase one detoxification system. Now, phase one is super important in the breakdown and elimination of estrogen, but what if someone has great phase one detoxification, but their phase two is suboptimal, right? You end up creating these potentially harmful estrogen intermediates that ideally phase two would and should properly neutralize. But what if your phase two detoxification system is not working as well as it should be? And furthermore, how would you even know if it weren't? So I'm going to get into all that, but I want to talk a bit more about phase one first. So in my earlier solo episode on estrogen, I talked a little bit about the three main estrogen metabolites. So there will be a bit, a small bit of redundancy before I cover new ground. And for those who missed that episode, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, so the three main estrogen metabolites I'll be covering today are the 2, 4, and 16 hydroxyestrones. And it's phase one and the cytochrome P450 enzymes that determine how much or little of each of those breakdown products you end up with. So the 2-hydroxyestrone is the most benign, right? The 4 is the most problematic, and the 16 can be problematic, but you do need some of the 16-hydroxyestrone around for certain biochemical functions in the body. So for starters... The biggest downside of the 16-hydroxyestrone is that while it isn't carcinogenic per se, it does have cell proliferative properties and thus can lead to not the creation of, but the growth of an existing tumor cell. And you tend to see a disproportionate amount of 16-hydroxyestrone in those with gut inflammation, right? particularly those who have diagnosed inflammatory gut conditions. So keep in mind, there are stool tests that will measure overall gut inflammation. And so they'll test for a marker called calprotectin, which is a protein that is closely correlated with inflammation of the gut specifically. So if you have an unusually high level of 16-hydroxyestrone, right, or, or disproportionately high level, calprotectin in that case would be a great marker to test for when doing your investigation, right? You also want to figure out why your gut inflammation is high as well. 
So in addition to uh, testing for calprotectin, testing for gut bugs as well would probably make a lot of sense in that particular scenario. Now, one of the upsides of the 16-hydroxyestrone, however, is that it plays a role in bone health and levels that are considerably too low can actually lead to issues with bone density. And I just want to mention that estriol is considered by most to be the safest of the three estrogens. And one of the reasons is that it's believed to be the one estrogen that can't convert into another potentially harmful hormone. And while that is true, it can actually break down into a metabolite of a hormone, and that's the 16-hydroxyestrone. So sometimes you'll hear about these quote-unquote anti-aging doctors prescribing something called a bias to postmenopausal women. And what a bias is is a formula that typically is comprised of 80% estriol and 20% estradiol, right? And sometimes that ratio can change, but often it's 80-20. So while estriol is considerably weak relative to estradiol and estrone for that matter, it can potentially lead to the increase of the 16-hydroxy levels. And as a result, it potentially can render some bone density support if that support is needed, right? Just keep in mind, I'm in no way suggesting or advocating for the support for bone density, right? I mean, it can be a potentially risky proposition given the proliferative uh, capabilities that the 16-hydroxyestrone can have, and it really should be entered into with caution and with the proper testing done on a regular basis as well, right? I'm just, I'm merely sharing what the thought process behind that strategy may be. Okay, now for the dreaded 4-hydroxyestrone. Now, the problem with the 4-hydroxyestrone is that if left unchecked, it can form these DNA damaging quinones. And when that happens, the body must then methylate that 4-hydroxyestrone in order to neutralize it. And that's done with the COMT enzyme, right? And that stands for catechol O-methyl transferase. So you want to make sure you're methylating well, and you may want to see which genetic variant in the COMT gene you have. Um, now, if the gene is fast, you'll have a genetic advantage to methylating the 4-hydroxy, and you may have a slow COMT or COMT, which would mean you're more prone to being not so great at methylating estrogens, and then there's the mixed people who are somewhere in the middle. So let's say you find out you have the slow type of variant, right? right then what? Should you worry? Should you freak out? I would say relax. Your genes are not your fate, right? How those genes express themselves is up to us. So I would say ensuring we aren't needlessly burning through our methyl stores by living an unhealthy lifestyle and instead are doing things like sleeping well, reducing stress, maintaining stable blood sugars, and if needed, supplementing with the proper methyl donors as well as methyl preservers, you should then be fine. Right, and this is what's known as epigenetics, right? Epi coming from the ancient Greek word for above, right? And above meaning above the gene. So epigenetics is really how our lifestyle influences our genes, either for good or for bad. So even if you weren't dealt a great genetic methylation hand at birth, it's still within your control to influence those genes and turn those genetic knobs in whichever direction we choose. Again, be it for good or for bad. 
Now, I spoke about phosphatidylcholine in my earlier solo episode pertaining to bile and how it could indirectly affect estrogen clearance. But another thing to consider is that over 40% of methylation is used up in order to synthesize phosphatidylcholine. So just think about how valuable our body considers phosphatidylcholine to be in order to use nearly half of our methylation just to make this one nutrient. So while phosphatidylcholine isn't an actual methyl donor per se, making it requires a ton of methylation to occur, right? So I'm gonna give an analogy, right? So think of methylation as the heat you use in your house during the winter months, right? And think of the money to pay for the electric bill as the methyl donors. Now, if over 40% of your electric bill came from the use of that heat, a good way to increase your bottom line per month is not to just try and earn more money to pay for the increased bill, but it's to cut back on the electric bill by using less heat and layering with more clothes to decrease the demand for all that heat and thus preserving energy. And that's what taking phosphatidylcholine is in the context of methylation, right? You're preserving this expensive methyl by taking an exogenous source of something that your body would have to burn through a ton of expensive methyl just to make what you could supplement with in the form of phosphatidylcholine. And in doing so, it reduces your demand for methyl and as a result, increases indirectly your methyl status. Okay, so we covered methylation and how it's needed to neutralize the 4-hydroxyestrone from turning carcinogenic. But what happens to the 4-hydroxy that just wasn't able to get neutralized? Well, they become quinones, which are super dangerous, but the body in its infinite wisdom has another backup plan, right? It has quinone reductase and glutathione as transferase to mop up whatever methylation couldn't take care of, right? So that means those two enzymes, right? Glutathione transferase and quinone reductase need to be on point. And so furafane is the best known compound with the most research backing up that it increases quinone reductase as well as glutathione as transferase levels. And so I actually interviewed Dr. Brian Kornblatt, who in my opinion is probably the most knowledgeable person on the planet on sulforaphane. And so he actually studied under Dr. Jed Fahey, who is kind of widely known to be the OG of sulforaphane research from way back in the early 90s when nobody really knew what sulforaphane even was. And if you guys haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. We get pretty deep into all these mechanisms and you could hear it kind of directly from the horse's mouth. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes for those who want to check that out. Okay, so I've gone over all the markers you could test for to give you objective, quantifiable feedback to determine where your starting point may be, as well as if the lifestyle changes you've made are working to improve the results. Right, so the question remains, however, if these DNA-damaging quinones are out there, how are we able to tell if we're able to properly neutralize them? So is there a biomarker or an assay determining that? So the answer is yes and no. Aha. Okay, so while you can't, to my knowledge, directly measure quinone levels in the body, you can, however, measure DNA damage, right? So there's a urine test called 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine. And so the compound deoxyguanosine is actually part of your DNA, right? So if you're peeing out this fragment of DNA, it's definitely not a good thing and it serves 
as sort of an indirect window into DNA damage that may be occurring, right? So if you have all this DNA damage, you can infer from that that your quinone levels are on the higher side causing and perpetuating that DNA damage. And thus, there is your indirect window into quinone levels, potentially. Now, I want to talk a little bit about glutathione and how it ties into estrogen, right? So for those who don't know, uh, glutathione is the body's main antioxidant that's made endogenously by a series of enzymatic processes, right? Kind of amazing if you think about it that without us having any awareness at all, our bodies just make this powerful compound on demand in response to oxidative stress, right? Just mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. So how does the body do this, right? So you have something called glutamine cysteine ligase, which is an enzyme that takes the amino acids glutamate and cysteine and sort of bonds them together to form what's called gamma glutamyl cysteine. And gamma glutamyl cysteine is a dipeptide, meaning a compound made up of two amino acids. But glutathione is actually a tripeptide, meaning it's made up of three amino acids. So we still need one more amino acid to make glutathione. And that's glycine. And so the amino acid glycine is then added by the enzyme glutathione synthase to then finally give us our end product, glutathione. Okay, I won't do that again, promise. But come on, how amazing is that process? Okay, so remember in one of my previous solo episodes, I talked about the importance of glycine and taurine for proper biofunction. So now you have yet another argument for the importance of not just glycine, but cysteine, glutamate, and really all of the amino acids that can be and are obtained primarily from animal products, right? And so I'm not saying you can't get amino acids from non-animal-based sources, but I am saying the amino acid profile in animal-based food is just far more robust. Now, how does all this tie into estrogen and estrogen metabolites? Well, we know that if the four hydroxy estrogens aren't properly neutralized by methylation, they can become DNA damaging, right? And we also talked about how the compound sulforaphane helps to mop that up. But it does this largely, but not solely, by increasing our endogenous production of glutathione, which, as I stated earlier, is our body's main antioxidant. So how does this happen? So what happens is sulforaphane actually acts as a small stressor to the body known as hormesis, right? So the body then reacts to that stress by increasing glutathione production. Okay, so let's take a step back for a second. So if sulforaphane increases glutathione by initiating all the enzymatic steps for that production, what would happen if the amino acids required to make glutathione are low due to poor gut health and or a vegan-based diet. Okay, so I want you guys to now take a second and visualize a car that runs on gas. And think of the gas in this analogy as glutathione. Right, without gas, the car ain't going anywhere. Now, think of sulforaphane as the act of applying your foot to the accelerator. So if you need to get somewhere fast, this is obviously really helpful. But the problem is the faster you go, the faster you run out of gas, right? But this shouldn't be an issue because you could just get more gas. You just need money for more gas, though. And if money equates to the amino acids to make gas, or glutathione in this case, eventually your glutathione is going to run dry no matter how hard you try to rev that enzymatic engine 
with whatever hermetic biohacks you read about online. Now, we also don't want to forget that if we properly methylate the 4-hydroxyestrogens, right, all that I just laid out regarding glutathione in the context of estrogen becomes far less of an issue. But the thing is, we need the amino acid methionine as a precursor to then make the body's main methyl donor, SAMe, in order for the COMT enzyme to work its magic and neutralize those nasty estrogen metabolites. Right, not to mention the need for B12 for methylation, which largely comes from animal-based foods. Right, and look, I'm not poo-pooing vegan diets by any means, right? There are people who have the genetics that make certain nutrient requirements far less than that of the average person's. And for them, they may do okay on a vegan diet, right? especially if they're being methodical about it and adding the proper nutrient supplementation. So I'm just saying, be mindful is all, because really the need for a robust, broad-spectrum amino acid profile in the diet has more impactful downstream effects than I think many people realize. Okay, well, I think this is as good a spot as any to kind of close out my series on estrogen. I obviously didn't cover every single nook and cranny about estrogen, and depending on your feedback, I'll consider doing another one on this topic. Um, there are a lot of other topics I'm eager to hit, though, so we'll have to see, but please write in some topics you're interested in, and I'll see you about doing a bunch upon request. All right, well, that about does it for today. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, and I hope you guys got a lot out of the whole estrogen series for that matter. Now, if you like the content on today's episode, leave me a review and let me know what you thought of the show, and also don't forget to subscribe. All right, well, until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guests' qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.